welcome to the Super Jump Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Mitchell Farley-Wolf, and I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of Super Jump Magazine, James Burns. James, it's been a little while again. <laughs> yeah, it has indeed, but hey, it's good to be back. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to start an episode ever that doesn't go with, hey, it's been a while. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, we, we try to be regular, we try to do all these things, but uh, as long as this isn't a job that we can pair ourselves with, life will get in the way of, of regularity, and that's just, you know, it's something that we can apologize for, but it's it's just one of those things. Um, we have a pretty big show, uh, considering that we are dealing with almost all of our news items are from different weeks, which is fun. Um <laughs> Yeah, we, we just have a lot to get to. But before we can get any uh, into any of that, let's head into the Playtime Report. So, James, I saw this movie. <laughs> I saw yes. this movie called Detective Pikachu. Uh, <laughs> and you saw Detective Pikachu. I did indeed, yes. How did you feel about Detective Pikachu? I know that this is... Um, I know there's probably a low bar here. But yeah, probably it's uh, it's definitely the starting point is that it's definitely the best video game based movie I've ever seen, uh, which is a which is a good start. Um, you know, I felt like uh, I felt like it was the sort of movie that could stand sort of shoulder to shoulder with any other kind of, you know, mainstream release. Um, which I know that's a fairly low bar to start with, but considering the history of video game movies, it's it's probably not. Uh, that's probably not an, an unexpected, um, you know, way to think about it. I guess. Um, I as like as far as Pokemon itself goes, I I'm just trying to think about whether I've actually seen any of the animated films. I think I've maybe seen part of one, so I'm not terribly well versed in those films um right but i was i guess i was pleased to see that this movie was something a little bit closer to what you would get from like a a pixar or something just in the sense that you know yes kids could watch it but i think it had a lot of content that was really you know targeted at adults as well and it was kind of going out of its way in a lot of cases to really cater for that broad audience, uh, which I really appreciated. So Detective Pikachu is the 22nd Pokemon movie. And, (laughs) ah, James, I loved it so much. I loved it so much. I really (laughs) did. Um, So it's it's not what I would say is a good movie. I I think there's I, we're not going to go into spoilers because uh people will be yeah. mad. But the, there's there's some writing issues I think in this movie um especially in, in just the main conflict. It's a mystery movie where the answer to the mystery is kind of forgettable, which is not what you want a mystery movie to be. Mm-hmm. Um but I've I've waited so long to see Pokémon realized in this kind of way. Uh, yeah. in, in, in a in a way that's like in, in the games and, and in some of the the, the the comics you you can have really child friendly stuff in Pokemon and that's probably the majority of it 
But you can also just have like, hey, this is just a story that takes place in the Pokemon world, and that's it's just what it's going to be. And yeah. this movie was that for me, and it it was it was the first thing, it was the first movie like that for sure. Even though it's there's been twenty two of them, <laughs> this was mm-hmm. the only one um, that I've seen of them, and I've seen like probably nineteen of those twenty two. Yeah. That that really hit there, and and the the designs. I know there's some controversy. I think they all look amazing. I think they all look fantastic. Um, yeah, me too. I, I thought the design yeah. was excellent all the way through. I know some people wanted to see more. Just like look, they wanted it to look more like the source material, and I I get that. But at the same time, there there's stuff in the Pokemon universe, like in the show. Uh, one of the characters is very afraid of bug type Pokemon. So it's funny when there's a bug type Pokemon on the, on the screen, and then that character is like, "Oh my god, yeah, it's scary," because it it just looks like a little worm or something. Mm. But you know, you're not gonna actually feel that it's gross because it's just drawn like any other kind of cute cartoon. Yeah. But in the world, in the fiction of the world, bug type Pokemon should look a little gross, like real bugs do. And yeah. in this movie, they super do. <laughs> they they look as gross <laughs> as they are. And Lickitung licking you is as gross as that should be. And yeah. uh, and Charizard is a giant scary dragon. It should feel scary. It shouldn't just feel like this is a picture of a dragon. Yeah. Um, I, think it, I think it worked out really well. That's all I really have to say without getting into spoilers. But I liked that movie a lot. Yeah. And it's uh, like I think one of the challenges they had. And I know we'll talk about another movie later that is having these challenges apparently. <laughs> is uh when you when you take a property like this that that is animated you know that that um you're kind of you're bringing it into this real world live action context you it's obviously true that you have to make some changes so that that uh you know you maintain some consistency and it doesn't feel too jarring but at the same time you want to um you want to kind of really respect the original designs and you want to uh, reference the original designs and themes sort of effectively, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so many, and, and I'm, as you know, I'm not a huge Pokemon expert, but there are so many little visual references all the way through this film that I think Pokemon fans will really appreciate. And um a lot of those references are done in a very sort of clever way. They're not just they're not just sort of randomly thrown in, or at least I didn't feel they were. So it felt to me like um, there was a lot of attention, really a lot of attention paid to the source material and respecting it. And when you think about the fact that, you know, they will have made this movie with support and involvement from the Pokemon company, and in turn Nintendo to to a degree, um, it kind of doesn't surprise me. Like when you when you think about the way Nintendo and and therefore the Pokemon Company are about, you know, kind of um, they keep things close to their, their chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they and, really and the Pokemon Company a does so control. a lot more than Nintendo usually. Like the Pokemon Company is very conservative with what kind of rights they give people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that clearly there was like a really close collaboration between the filmmakers and the actual owners of the IP 
who understand their own IP really well. And the result is you get this film, which, um, which works really well. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm all, I'm still just shocked that this film got made because (laughs) making Pokemon that look like how Pokemon should look in the universe of Pokemon in a live action Mm. setting is a bonkers, totally unrealistic (laughs) thing to ask a movie studio to do. And even then asking for the rights from, from the Pokemon company to just kind of do whatever they want with it. Cause it did seem like that's how it went. That's crazy Mm. too. Um, because there's, there's things like, this is not a spoiler. There's, there's the Pokemon snubble there, um, in, in the movie and snubble in the anime is like the size of, I don't know, a dog, like a lap dog or something. Kind of just one of those Pikachu sized little gremlin dudes that, that walk around. (laughs) Um, and in this movie, snubble is enormous and it's. It, it, it's something that, like, if the Pokemon company was involved with it that much, Snubble wouldn't be. Um, but it's also just just as valid of an interpretation of, of the original source material in the games to make it that big. So it's it's kind of I just don't I just don't know how it happened, but I'm so I'm so glad that it did. It it seems like such an improbable thing. Mm. Um, but you've been playing some of what the kids are calling video games too so we should probably talk about those um the big one going around right now is rage 2 yes yes um and i mean by the time uh, by the time people hear this show they uh, you know if you're interested in rage 2 you probably will have either played it yourself or you will have watched a review or read a review and uh i mean from what i've seen of the reviews um they're all generally pretty spot on i think in the sense that this was a game if you think back to the original e3 reveal and you think about the original trailer um at least in my mind it looked absolutely amazing because it was kind of this you know Mad Max, neon, yeah, cyberpunk wasteland, crazy, crazy looking thing that just looked like, you know, you would be in this massive open world. There would be these convoys full of crazy, ve- you know, crazy threatening vehicles tr- driving around. Um, you know, there would be sort of populated towns everywhere that you could go to, all this different stuff you could do, explosions everywhere. And in reality, um, it's, it's a little bit more bland than that. It doesn't, it, it, it's actually quite a conservative game. Um, it, and, and it's almost, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's a shame because it just looked so awesome. Um, and it's one of these games where I think because some people are disappointed, there's a temptation to just sort of write it off as a bad game but i have to say it's actually good like it's it's a solid good (laughs) it's not great it's not maybe this is disrespectful but from the moment i first saw that game i was like that's a (laughs) 7.5 that's like i I just called it i kind i just kind of knew i just kind of felt that um it it didn't seem like it was going to be broken 
at all. And I'm glad yeah, that's the yeah. case because with uh, it's not made by Bethesda, but with Bethesda, you could never really know. Um, but it also just seemed like it would be kind of what it is. And um, it, it, it's rare these days that a game gets a middling score that is not a result of a mixed review pool. Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. Usually things and, are very good or very bad, or people don't agree if they're very good or very bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, it's kind of refreshing to see us just, like, land on this. Like, no, it's it's fine. It's just, yes, whatever. It's not going to be the best game of the year. It's just fine. Yeah, that's, it's kind of, it's kind of been received with a collective meh. Um, and... I mean, I the thing that made me hold out hope for it, you know, aside from the trailer, was that you've got id Software and I think uh, they're called Avalanche Studios behind it. Uh, I mean, you know, don't need to say anything about id, especially given Doom 2016 and how good that was. Um, and then you've got Avalanche who make the Just Cause games. And, you know, so you've kind of got this mashup of amazing shooting mechanics moment to moment action combined with a studio that is kind of known for doing some really great open world designs and the funny thing about rage 2 is it's it's that you can feel that mashup when you're playing the game it's and it's like there are two different games when you when you get to like an enemy outpost or you do a mission where you're in combat you're basically playing Doom 2016 with, you know, crazy kind of neon aesthetics, some really cool superpowers, really awesome weapons. Like it feels amazing. It sounds amazing. You can hear the bones crunching. Like it's, it's really, really good stuff. But then you leave that area and you get in your vehicle and go out into the open world. And it's just kind of a bit like a wet fart. Like it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just a little flat, you know, there's not a lot going on. Um, the, a lot of people on the, have complained about the driving mechanics on the PC version. Um, I'm playing it on PS4 and they're fine on console. I, I think I get the impression this is one of those games that was sort of made for console first because, the UI and, um, you know, the controls and everything on PC seem to be kind of adapted from console and not adapted very well. Um, so, yeah, it's... I'm enjoying it and I'll still play it, but um, I, I, I'll i just say that I don't think it's going to show up again on my next Playtime report. Yeah, I... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it it just it it strikes me as maybe a victim of the over prevalence of open worlds in in games right now. That seems to be the seems to be the flavor of the month for the last few well years, I guess. Um, and yeah, when when you have yeah. a very actiony, high octane formula like the one from Doom, putting that in an open world seems seems counterintuitive because what open worlds do is they make the time between things longer and they they make your ability to get distracted and just kind of be pensive for a while much more active which is why yes. zelda had to calm way the hell down for breath of the wild it like yeah. 
people don't remember Skyward Sword being like a high octane game or anything like that. But if you play Breath of the Wild and then Skyward Sword, stuff is happening in Skyward Sword like like all the time. And in yep. Breath of the Wild, it, it it's just got so much. I, I it's been a while since we've done the show, so I had to bring Breath of the Wild up. <laughs> of um, course, yeah. It, it's just so much calmer, and you know, it seems like those ideas are maybe in conflict in Rage Two. Yeah, definitely, I think so. And uh, I mean, I read one comment that was basically saying this game would have been much better if they just cut the open world and they had made it kind of a linear mission by mission shooter like doom um that part of the game is 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 exceptional is very very good uh but yeah you you've really got no kind of motivation to explore the world um i mean you, you know you'll definitely pick up missions and points of interest and you know, outposts and whatever, you'll discover things on the map. But what's what's really happening is you discover those things, you go to those locations and you're doing the same combat loop again. It's it's all the same, you know, fundamentally yeah. it's all the same thing that you're doing in just different places. So it's kind of like, you know, let's just cut out the middleman and just have this as kind of an action shooter and, and that's okay. That would have been quite good. I have a deep intrinsic disdain of doing of playing an open world game where the open world takes place in a tan rocky desert and it seems (laughs) like that's so common but also so just unattractive and and so so uninteresting to me to be in um that just the fact that it's in that kind of desert makes me really not want to do it um (laughs) and maybe that's shallow maybe that's not giving the game enough credit for like it's not all about the setting or what it looks like there's there could be some interesting mechanics in there and i'm sure there are but i i don't want to spend that much time in that kind of desert i just don't i just don't want to is that fair i don't know (laughs) yeah no. i don't know if it's it's giving him a fair shake look it's it's fair i mean so Rage 2 does have some different environments. Um, like there are kind of different biomes that you go to, but it's definitely true that most of the world kind of is this wasteland desert. Um, I think what makes the kind of aesthetics interesting is that you have this funny, um, and I don't really know what the word is to describe this, but uh, you've you've got this kind of, flourishes of like bright pink and blue and yellow everywhere it's it's got that very strong kind of um neon uh, yeah right palette that contrasts with the desert and that works quite well um for me personally though like i i would actually kind of want to dial that up to 11 i would i would like it's done reasonably well but i would like to dial it up even further and make it even more intense um, because it works so well and it's sort of, it, it breaks things up. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think, I think a lot of people who bought this game, you know, especially if you like Doom 2016, they'll definitely enjoy the the kind of moment to moment stuff, but it's, it's difficult to see people not getting bored fairly quickly. 
Um, it's also difficult for me to see people preferring this interpretation of Doom to Doom Eternal coming out later this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think part of the, like, if you go back and look at reviews of the original Rage, in some ways, um, some of the criticisms people have of Rage 2 are a little bit similar to criticisms they had of the first game. Like, the first game was hinting at something really great, uh, and it just didn't quite get there. Um I mean, it was made in a, it. It was admittedly made at a time when I think open world games weren't quite as prevalent as they are now. So, sure, that aspect was a bit more novel. Um, but I think a lot of people as well were hoping that Rage Two would kind of finally live up to the promise of the series. That it would be this kind of crazy first person Mad Max in this big living world. And unfortunately, it it just doesn't quite get there. Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, I I don't know. There's just there's just something about it that kind of makes me a a little melancholic that it went this way where it just kind of mm. was fine because yeah. especially with with how Bethesda works as a as a production um studio and and, and publisher to other studios you you know how many people worked on this game and mm. I I feel like a lot of the issues that we talked about today about it are, are extensions of people in, in perhaps elevated places of power coming down and saying, like, you know, we should really do it this way. We should really... It, it, this the, the open world should be at least 2.5 Skyrims. That's just industry standard. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th- that makes sense. And I mean, the the only thing I would say is like, you're right, you know, I, and, and especially because I hoped this would be more than it is, I, I feel a little bit sad and I feel a bit sad for the team. But on the other side of the coin, um, I think we are so used to living in a world where it's like everything is boom or bust. Yeah. We, you know, we hear about, the God of War type games on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we hear about the anthems that are these horrific abject failures. Um, But actually it's, you know, something like Rage 2 is, there is space, I think, for these games that are, that are just sort of fine and that are, that are actually quite a lot of fun. They don't, they're not going to kind of redefine a genre or anything. Um, And there are, there are certain players who this type of game will appeal to a lot more. I mean, there are players that are going to be fine with not having a million different activities to do in the open world. And they really, you know, they love the the kind of shooting aspect and that's really what they want to focus on. And so th- there's kind of, there are people who I think are, are really going to enjoy this a lot. I think it just kind of depends on what your expectations are going in. Um, right. And yeah, from what I've seen of all the reviews so far, I mean, they're all they're all pretty much aligned in what they're saying, which is which itself is kind of interesting as you said earlier. Um I I I think sometimes about Bethesda and how maybe 3 years ago they really seemed on it. They seemed like they had this fairly grand claim 
on Western AAA games where, you know, that they had Skyrim and that was the latest Elder Scrolls and that was great. And uh, Fallout 4 was divisive, but like pretty great by most standards. And, and Doom and Wolfenstein The New Order. But then just <laughs> like every one of those things had like, oh, let's, let's put out another one of those that's like a little weirder, um, a little less popular. And it makes me nervous for, for how they're going to go forward. Because I, I think the Elder Scrolls slash Fallout um, brand of gameplay is is fantastic in its own right. Like, it, it has some things that it does that are just amazing. But, um, you know, if they, keep, if they keep putting these games out with the, these uh, technical values, these low technical mm. values... Um, and then there, even, even there's subsidiary studios, which were supposed to keep the, the company like up and running between those. Um, if, if Rage is not up to snuff and Fallout 76 is really bad. Um, and Wolfenstein, the new Colossus, I think was, was mixed, uh, the reception of that. I, I wonder, I wonder how they're, they're going to be feeling about it, especially after Fallout 76. That was, that was a turning point for sure. Uh, yeah, I hope Starfield yeah. is great. I hope Starfield is great and it has a different engine and it, it doesn't even look, feel like the other games. Um, well, and that that's yeah. the thing. Like I, in my head, when I think of Bethesda now, I I really divide them into two halves. There's the Bethesda game studios half, yeah, with you know Fallout, Starfield, etc., using that creaky old rickety engine, and then there's all the other studios, you know, Wolfenstein, Doom, Rage, um, and and of all of those games, like they're all they're all pretty good. Like Rage is still definitely Rage Two is definitely still an above average game. Uh, it, it's I wouldn't even I wouldn't call it, for instance, a failure or anything like that. Sure, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And Wolfenstein was was pretty good. Doom was exceptional. Doom was great. Um, so I kind of. I, I re- when I think of Bethesda now, I really think of Bethesda Game Studios as being this whole separate problem child um, within that Bethesda group of companies. Um, but it does make you wonder, you know, the Fallout 76 example, for instance, like it, it does make you wonder how it kind of impacts the work that the other teams are doing that are being published under the Bethesda brand. Right. I... Uh... Do you think they're going to keep the name Starfield? Oh, because it's question. Garfield with an ST. <laughs> oh, no idea. I, I, I actually wonder, there's a part of me that wonders, like after Fallout 76 and the reception, I, I just wonder what those internal conversations are with other games like Starfield, which use the same engine. Like, are they... Are they jumping into emergency meetings and trying to decide what the hell they're going to do? Or are oh, they, they just plowing <laughs> ahead? Or like what? Yeah. Uh, man, being a fly on the wall in those conversations would be interesting. I would be scared. I would be very scared. Yeah. Uh, um. Okay. Um. I've been playing a lot of my, my passive games, as I call them. I, I've been in, in Super Smash mm. Brothers Ultimate a lot still. Um. Just... Every now and again, I'll, I'll go online and I'll uh, 
I'll, I'll try to be good and it'll say, no, 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 you're not very good. Uh, and I'll be reminded that I'm not very good. And uh, I, I've really enjoyed playing some of my friends um, created levels or, or stages for Smash Brothers. Mm. That update came with uh, with Joker recently. Uh, have you played with the custom stage builder in Smash at all? No, I haven't. No. It's it's really featured. It, it has a lot of things going on. Uh, my friend Jeff Owen, friend of the show, created a stage based on a Donkey Kong Country boss called uh, Eric, which is A-R-I-C-H, um, like mm-hmm. an arachnid. Uh, you're... you're stuck in between these two trees and for the first like 20 seconds of of every match you can't do anything but you're just like fighting your opponent like regular smash bros and then Mm -hmm. 20 minutes in or 20 seconds in seconds not minutes that'd be crazy uh 20 seconds in he drops a giant spider made of lava from the (laughs) the top of the stage that you (laughs) couldn't see the whole time that i i love it it's just it's that kind of stuff that uh, you definitely couldn't do that in in previous previous Smash games um, car- uh, stage builders. It, it's pretty impressive that they've just dropped a feature that big as DLC in in Smash Bros. Um, a lo- uh, the yeah, other cool. kinds of of passive games I've been playing, I've been playing a lot of Sudoku uh, on my phone, which is I. I I really like that kind of like logic puzzle, but I found one that I like more than Sudoku that's called Parks. It's a grid-based like puzzle game where um basically th- this this grid is divided into se- several colors and every color needs to have a tree in it. It represents a park. Every park needs one tree. Mm-hmm. Um but the trees can't be in the same row, column, and they they can't be like near each other. And using those constraints to fill out those those um, Sudoku like grids is really fun. It's a it's a cool game. I would recommend it. it. It should be on like every kind of smartphone. Cool. Yeah. And your uh, last game for our playtime report. You're playing Civilization Six. Yeah. On Switch. Um, yeah. It's. I think it's been out for a little while. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was released. Um, but I kind of just randomly picked it up. I, I, the Switch is one of those consoles where it's really easy to just buy a handful of games in a in a single like shopping spree, and then maybe play one of them. Um, especially because you know, like, there's a lot of indie titles. There's a lot of stuff that is is a little bit cheaper. It's just so easy to impulse buy. Um, Civilization Six is one that I'd been looking at for a while because I've I've had it for ages on uh, on PC um, or on Mac in my case, um, and I it's 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 one of those games where I would normally be a little bit hesitant about getting it on console and and especially getting it on Switch because you know it's. It's a fairly sort of complex game. There's a million different menus. Um, right. I've tried non-PC versions of Civilization before, and I've kind of never really liked them on other platforms. They've always sort of felt a little bit stripped down, a little bit oversimplified. Um, well, are you playing? Really are cool... you playing on Switch with the touchscreen? No, no, I'm playing with the the Joy Cons in handheld mode. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you can kind of do both, though. It actually kind of works to, to use both at the same time. Um, but I'm really, really impressed by this. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's like the fully featured PC version. It doesn't have the cartoony graphics. It, it has the PC version's graphics, and they actually look really good on the Switch. Um, the the way that they've done the UI on the Switch is pretty exceptional. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like you can use touchscreen, you can use touchscreen only if you want. Um, you can use a combination of touchscreen with Joy-Cons, uh, but the way that they've kind of mapped the controls and reconfigured the UI for the Switch is really, really well done. Um, you know, you basically have, like, you can pan around the map with your right stick, you kind of move your cursor with the left stick, and then, like, when you've selected a unit or a city or something, um, you use the D-pad on the left Joy-Con to kind of navigate through, like, a, a context-sensitive menu around that selection. Um, and the whole thing just works really, really smoothly. Um, so that's all really impressive. But I think what's impressed me most is the performance is really, really good. Um, that which really is surprising. Me. It's really surprising because even on, even playing it on like my MacBook Pro and not having it on kind of ultra graphics or anything, it's one of those games where you get a few hours in and you've revealed a lot of the map and there's a million... Um, AI opponents with lots and lots of, you know, they're all taking their turns and it starts to get very bloated after a few hours. It takes a long time to do the turns. Uh, on Switch, you still get a bit of that kind of bloat, like it still slows down a bit, but it's it's like, it's really slick. Like it handles it really well. Um, I'm genuinely surprised by how well it performs. That's cool, uh, man. I, I didn't know it was... Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I didn't know much about this port. Um, I, I knew It came out in November, so I mm. I waited to hear someone tell me that, like, no, this is the one that's worth playing, and I kind of didn't hear it, so I passed on it. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it seems great. It seems like a great port. It's... I don't know what magic they pulled to get it working like this. Cause, cause I haven't played it in dock mode either. I've played it only in handheld mode. Um, dock mode, apparently, as you would expect, the performance is a little bit better, but in handheld mode, it's exceptional. And so not only is the performance good, but it's surprisingly, um, like efficient with the battery. So, Hmm. I played it I played it a couple of nights ago and I, I reckon I played maybe I don't know somewhere between two and three hours huh and my switch was still well above 50 percent battery that's um, improbable that and that's improbably <laughs> slow that's I was yeah because I actually um I even I'd played it for long enough that I thought oh you know it'll probably give me a battery warning soon and I went out of the game to look at the battery indicator on the home screen and I forget what it was but it was like I don't know 56 57% battery or something and I'm like 
how is that possible? Yeah, wow. <laughs> like, I, it should be like 10%. I don't know how this is happening. So, uh, yeah, it's like if you're if you're wanting to play this game on a platform other than PC, uh, I know I think you can get it on the other consoles now, but like Switch is the way to go because having this fully featured PC strategy game in the palm of your hand playing exactly like the PC version looking exactly like the PC version is crazy absolutely crazy it's um it, it's it's really impressive cuz civilization 6 isn't a game that's um known for being particularly graphically intensive but it does have so mm. many individual like objects on screen yeah. that do their own little thing almost like pikmin um yeah. so i guess nintendo has a history of that specific technical problem but it, it is it is still impressive to see running on on the switch uh, especially in a way that um has its ui working in a in a single controller standard controller based environment um, so that's going to do it for the Playtime Report. Thank you for bringing your games. But we have some news to get to in the Newsy Nibble. Okay, number one. Let's. Um, I, I think we cut the Detective Pikachu conversation a little short because I wanted to make some comparisons to another movie that now we get to talk about. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog. You know the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, it had a trailer. It was it was real bad. It was no one liked it. It it was just it was just awful. So the director of the movie in an unprecedented move. I don't remember anything like this ever happening in the history of film. In an unprecedented move came out on Twitter and said, "We've heard all the criticism, the bad and the good, or uh, this is not word for word, but um we we've heard all the feedback." We know that you aren't happy with the design. Don't worry, it will be changed. What? <laughs> you you can't just change. That movie comes out in September or something. Hang, hang on, let me find out when that movie comes out. Uh I, it's it's the fall. Um <laughs> I I was uh, I was shocked to see this tweet. I yeah. couldn't believe it. Um, okay, it is going to be released in on November 8th. Yeah, so within the span of half a year, they're somehow going to take all of the Sonic out of this movie and make more Sonic and put it in the movie. It's already <laughs> shot. Like, it, it's already shot with the original Sonic design in mind. Um... So, so like what, man? There's an article from Gizmodo that came out around um, Wednesday of, let's see, that's Wednesday the 15th of May, that is entitled, VFX Artists Explain What It Would Actually Take to Redo Sonic the Hedgehog, and it's a lot. Like, it's it's the better part of, of the movie's development. How we 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 talk a lot in um in in this podcast about crunch because it seems to be like the big industry issue right now, um and and work conditions in general. If you do if they do this, 
to the degree that they are implying that they're doing it, and I, I still think it's possible they're mostly hot air. They're, they're, it, they could just be saying, you know, like, no, we'll maybe put his eyes closer together, <laughs> or just like a, a small change. <laughs> if they actually redo his whole design, that is that is an amazing amount of work to 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 force on these VFX artists who are probably not the reason he looks like that. Yes, yes, that's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, there's so many different issues wrapped up in this. Like, the, there's the initial thing of, like, and it's what we were saying about Detective Pikachu. There's this basic fundamental thing of just apparently not understanding, really, the source material. Yeah. And, and I don't know what level of involvement Sega has had here. I mean, I... I, I could be just totally making this up, but I really get the strong impression that Sega is um, not at all what it used to be. And uh, it, it, you know, it doesn't seem to kind of respect its own franchises in the way that maybe it once did. Um, well, it, the director of Sonic that... Team came out recently, actually, on and, and said uh, said some words on the topic of this movie. Basically, he said... Um, it's now up to Paramount to make a successful product. <laughs> Basically, just saying like, "Hey, we didn't. We don't know. We, we, at in the people actually working with Sonic games, like the original Sonic Source material, we're not part of that American nonsense. That's that's not us. It's it's all Paramount. It's all up to Paramount." Which is probably not what Paramount wanted to hear. Um, <laughs> uh, just a yeah, complete and even, even, um, drop of responsibility. Even, yeah, yeah. Uh, and even I, I've seen on Twitter even uh, Naoto Oshima and Yuji Naka, who were the two original creators of Sonic, um, they um, have, I mean, they've been fairly polite about it, but they've both kind of indicated. Um, or they've indicated that they're both sort of somewhat positive toward the idea of fixing this design, um, which which I thought was interesting coming from them. Um, so I mean, there's the there's there's kind of that initial thing of how the hell did we get here in the first place? And remember, before the trailer, there were all those leaks of like PowerPoint slides and. Mm-hmm posters and like various images and things coming out early on that was starting to give people nightmares and of course it all turned out to be true um, yeah so there's that element of it and and there's a clear <clears throat> there's a clear object lesson here between sonic and detective pikachu in terms of how to do it well and how not to do it well um in terms of actually now responding to the backlash and making the change. It's an interesting thing because I, I've read sort of conflicting things about this. Like um, I follow a lot of um, professional animators on Twitter and uh, even they seem to be very conflicted around, you know, what level of work is going to be involved here and whether it's going to be you know, on the one end of the scale, reasonably trivial, and on the other end of the scale, a massive redo that's going to require a huge amount of work. 
I guess it does come back to what you said earlier. Like it depends what they're going to change. Is it a wholesale change? Are they just going to change his facial design? Which probably that seems to be the biggest sticking point. Like yeah, his, I his mean, overall his, his overall body like proportions are a bit yeah. So like they could kind of they could probably sort of keep his overall shape but just change his face, which shouldn't be a huge deal. Um, but then there's this question, and and I don't know how I feel about this. I'm really conflicted. There's this whole question about, you know, you've created something, mm-hmm. you've released it, or you've released a trailer, a whole audience of people on the internet get angry demand that you change your design and you capitulate and do it. Um, this has been compared to what happened with Mass Effect 3, the ending of Mass Effect 3. Um, and there's this like, there's this really conflicting feeling about it. Because on the one hand, I sort of think, well, you know, the design was so obviously terrible and the movie probably you can pretty much guarantee no matter how good the movie would have been um it it would definitely have suffered as a result of this design like the whole story about the film through history is going to be how bad the design is so like there's an element of saying if we can do anything as a studio to to change things and fix it we should but on the other hand there is this question of if if people on the internet start getting into this habit where they think they can just demand changes. And I don't know anything about the detail, but I do know there's been some change, uh, some demand around game of Thrones, the latest season. Yeah. <laughs> As a non game of Thrones watcher, I don't know what it's about, but I have read that, that there's like petitions and stuff around this. And I don't know how I feel about it. Um, it, it kind of makes me worry a little bit that like, you know, um, we, we're going to get into a situation where anything creatively that people just don't like, instead of just not watching it or critiquing it, they're now going to be compelled to start massive petitions and demand that it gets changed. And I, well, I don't know if that's really a healthy thing in, in every case. If it, I, I'm not convinced that's entirely what's happening. Um, yeah. with, with this movie specifically, they put out a trailer, right? And the trailer isn't just as it, I've been thinking about trailers a, a lot recently because every single movie that comes out has a trailer and it doesn't need to, um, there, there's mm-hmm. nothing in the law of any country saying, if you have a movie, you need a trailer also. It, it's not a union rule or something. You just, you do it because it's, it's the most effective commercial you could possibly make for your product. Um, mm. you you are advertising with your trailer, so the the Paramount people put out this trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, and people see it and they respond with, um, "Thank you for showing me, but no, I won't see that. I I I don't like it. I don't like the way it looks. Um, mm. I I it doesn't even look like bad enough to be funny. It's so bad it just looks boring and sad. Um, I don't want to go and pay money for it." And if if we get into this this attitude where a, a a piece of art or or any product really at all should be received at least positively, 
you know, that's, that's effectively stealing. Because now you're saying, you have to give me money. Whether or not this is good, it doesn't matter. Like, you have to pay for the movie ticket. Uh, and, and there were petitions to change the Sonic movie. But I think none of those mattered as much as the fact that it's just... If we release this as is, we won't make money on it. We won't make the correct amount of money, whatever we've determined determined that to be. And that mm. that is more of just like a smart business move at that point if it's going to take less money to change sonic than the money you would have lost from having a bad yes. looking sonic yeah yeah um yeah. oh absolutely yeah and that's where i'm a bit conflicted because I, I i agree with you like i think i think this is a, sort of a specific case um but and and maybe this is not something that is is going to eventuate um in this way, but I, 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 yeah, I, I just wonder in general about this idea of, um, you know, of, of fans kind of demanding changes to things and, and companies always responding to that. Um, and maybe, maybe it's, um, you know, it is just a case by case thing and it's because, you know, like the, the Mass Effect 3 ending, for example, is quite a different case to this film, I guess. Sure, I, I, I wonder if, if it's also just like in in the Mass Effect Three example, if you have the creators of the thing saying, actually the story really should have gone that way, it would be weird for me to think of an argument in favor of them not changing it to be the thing they want it to be, whereas mm. this Sonic thing, it's like. The design of Sonic is not necessarily even the thing people were mad about. It's the thing they're responding to because they can't change the rest of the movie. But the, yeah, yeah. the the initial trailer feedback, like the design of Sonic was just part of it. Sonic looked bad, mm. but also in addition to that, uh the movie looked really bad. Uh they the for I I just don't understand this approach to adaptations. Who is the star of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie based on the trailer? <laughs> the answer is James Marsden. Mm. What character is he playing? It's not Knuckles. Yeah. Like, it's not... <laughs> it's not a, a Sonic character. Why would you do that? <laughs> you're adapting this thing with, like, these... With such iconic characters. And you're the main character of your movie is a cop played by James Marsden. He's not anything... <laughs> Like people like Sonic characters, they they do. People don't like Sonic all the time, but the people who like Sonic the most it, do enjoy Sonic characters. Uh, and and yeah, like that's yeah. that's crazy to me. The 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 scene you saw the trailer, right? There's the scene yeah. with James Marsden carrying Sonic in a duffel bag, and it's zipped up. Like, why on earth would you put Sonic? Why would you do that? Why would <laughs> he's the fastest anything that's ever happened, and like he he doesn't need to be protected by a cop. Like he's the star. Sonic should be the the star of the thing. And it, oh, it makes me so mad. And and uh, if you count up everything in that trailer that actually had to do with Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, it, it's just a few things. We can count them on on one hand. It's Sonic the Hedgehog himself. Dr. Eggman, 
The city they're in is called Green Hill, which isn't even like right. That's not even how it should yeah. be because it, yeah. the the trailer implies that there's like this other world Sonic's from, and that probably looks like the Sonic world we've known. That should have Green Hill Zone. So that's not even it's like it's called that, but that's not even correct. And there are rings. <laughs> um, that's four things, and it looks like the entire rest of the movie is not additional things. It, it looks like the entire rest of the movie is entirely new stuff. I here's, here's the difference between Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm sorry for getting heated. It's just crazy that they went in this direction to, to me. Here's the difference between Sonic the Hedgehog and Detective Pikachu. Mm. Um, we have it on good authority that Detective Pikachu was being shopped around before they actually knew that the story was going to be based on the video game Detective Pikachu. They they knew it was going to be a live-action Pokemon movie. Um, yeah. Warner Brothers, I think, was in the running for t- taking it. Eventually, Legendary got the rights. Uh, Max Landis was on board to write the movie. Um, mm. And he wanted to write a story about a boy named Red and his Graveler, which is, to me, wild that they would pick Graveler, but sure. Um, and they just wanted to make a story about the the regular Pokemon, like, trainer, become a champion journey, that sort of thing. Pokemon companies, uh, went pretty far with that, but then eventually they said, you know what, we really want to do this Detective Pikachu idea. Max Landis didn't, so they split ways. And then the people at Legendary were already groomed to, like, really like Pokemon, and the people that are in charge of this project know what is up with Pokemon, Yes. Uh, yes. So that's that's a, a a completely different thing from from Sonic because in in, in Pokemon every every second there's something in frame that is in, indicative uh, it's indicative that they're in the Pokemon world. There's no mm. way they aren't. Like this is the Pokemon world as I've always known it. it it's it's kind of like aesthetically mixed with Bla- Blade Runner a little bit, but it's also it's also just correct. Where mm. the Sonic movie, I'm fairly. I'm nearly convinced that this Sonic movie uh, began its life as a script for an E.T. spinoff. A spinoff to the E.T. series. Um, Yeah. And then they got the rights to Sonic and they were told, uh, what if instead of E.T. it's just Sonic? And then they said, I won't change anything for that. I just need to write in some more, like change some names and I'm done. I think that's spot on. It's it's almost like um it's almost like this in the sonic movie they're just kind of it's someone seeing sonic as like an asset in a portfolio rather than an actual character with a world and kind of a theme and 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 i think um and i know this is where my like i'm i consider myself kind of like um retro sonic fan and i know there's a whole generation of people who you know kind of grew up with sonic adventure and and then the newer games. But one of the things about this, this movie that sort of irritates me is Let's just, hear it. <laughs> is, is just the fact that Sonic is in the real world. Um, and, and there's this thing, there's this thing that happened with Sonic, which started in Sonic adventure, which I never really understood in Sonic adventure. All of a sudden Sonic was dropped into like the real human world. And he was, kind of walking around a city in amongst human beings who had the proportions of human beings. He looked like Sonic. The whole thing to me just 
was stupid and made no sense. Like it came, it seemed to come out of nowhere. If you look at all the Sonic games before that, right back to the beginning, you know, they were always these really kind of colorful, whimsical um, creations where a big part of the aesthetic was the world design itself. It had a very, you know, distinctive look and theme and feel. Um, If you actually go and, and, and anyone listening, like if you're interested in this, you can actually find on YouTube the the intro and the ending cinematics to Sonic CD. If you look those up, you'll see exactly what I mean. And the same is true of the the intro cinematic for Sonic Mania. When you watch those... He's just bouncing you, on shapes. And, He's just hanging yeah, out with some, but, like, some geometry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you... Uh, particularly the Sonic CD intro. Um, if you look at that one, there's kind of a um there's sort of an implied story going on they obviously don't get into it in the game it's just a platform or whatever but when i think about that intro um i kind of imagine that aesthetic being the foundation for a for a movie um you know whether it's 3d or not so for me it's when i look at this trailer it's kind of everything that's Everything that I don't like about what's happened to Sonic in more recent years, combined with the bad character design, combined with the fairly bland kind of nonsensical, um, you know, theme of the film. Um, so I look at it and I just think, well, you know, even if they improve the Sonic character model in some way, I, I don't know that that redeems the film. I, I I kind of don't understand really why it exists. Yeah, I yeah I don't know. And I also thought that like, worst comes to worst, Jim Carrey is Doctor Eggman, and that'll kind of be fun in its own way. Um, I didn't I didn't like him as Doctor Eggman at all. <laughs> I didn't. I thought that wasn't that that was annoying to watch too. Um, yeah, I mean, he was an evil Ace Ventura, really. Like, he yeah. wasn't really, he wasn't really Doctor Eggman in any sense. Yeah, and I'll I'll go for some Ace Ventura. Like, I I'll if that's how it's gonna be for sure. I grew up on the mask, but um, it 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 just it just seemed it just seemed incorrect in a lot of different ways. Uh, it seemed mm. incorrect. Even if this wasn't a Sonic movie, this is just a Jim Carrey movie. It didn't seem like that's how he should yes. be being also. Um, but yeah, that's that's yeah. too much conversation for the Sonic movie. Um, <laughs> PlayStation had one of their Nintendo Directs. I mean, State of Plays. Um, they, it, it was a short one. It, it wasn't that big. But I think it was done with the intention of saying, like, this is kind of what we're going to get for the E3 season. Just a few things to talk about. And because it's just a few things to talk about, that's why they're not doing a uh, presentation or being, they're not even showing up on the show floor. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had a, a number of new Sony published games to to show off. I think the, the biggest two were not Sony published, though. The biggest two were the, the, the first one. It opened with Monster Hunter World, the Iceborne expansion, which is, um, you know, Monster Hunter World kind of lit the... the gaming world on fire 
a little bit mm. and now it's gonna light it on ice that's a i hate it i hate what i just said but um <laughs> it, it looks good that was your that was your sonic movie moment yeah i i didn't like it i knew immediately i'll have to take that one back to the workshop and spend six months yeah fixing that's that right. one yeah um but Iceborne, it looks like a huge expansion. Um, yeah. It, it's just like, it looks almost double the game. This probably could have been a standalone game. Yeah, yeah, like a sequel or, yeah. Remind me, did you get into Monster Hunter World? I did, yeah. I, I finished Monster Hunter World. Um, one of the few games I actually finished. Uh I mean, there was a ton of there were a ton of activities that I never got to in the game. I finished it and kind of moved on, but it, it's it's pretty exceptional. And I think it was, I feel like it was the Monster Hunter game that kind of roped people in who didn't have a history with Monster Hunter before that. Like I'd never played a Monster Hunter game. I'd never really been interested in them, uh, but Mod- Monster Hunter World was was incredible it was really really fun to play co-op as well um so i was pretty excited to see this um both because it's more monster hunter world right uh, yeah and because of the size and it looks like there's i mean they it was a fairly small trailer but it just from the look of it it looks like there's quite a bit more going on with um environmental hazards and dynamic environments and that sort of thing and that was quite a big part of the original monster hunter world so um yeah i mean this could get me back into it i think you you do think you'll come back it, it, it seems yeah, like a so. kind of big commitment to come back to a game a it's, second time for an extended period of time i think you the, the key to it well at least for me the key to it is you've got to have someone to play it with like you can match make and everything and that's fine but it's a lot more fun if you've got a couple of people you know a couple of friends that are playing it along with you um and you kind of go on this adventure together so for me that's probably what it will depend on like if if i have a couple of people who also jump in then that'll probably convince me as well right okay um cool that's that's iceborne the other big uh, announcement was at the end of this. It's a direct uh, Final Fantasy VII remake apparently exists in a way that is capable of being shown off, because that is not what I thought about that game. But it, it it's true. <laughs> um, there's gameplay, and it's it's gameplay in the style of. Well, it's the Kingdom Hearts style. It was also done for Final Fantasy XV, where um, it, it's real-time action, but it, it's also done with um, kind of the respect of, of how your actions are decided in turn-based RPGs, where you can decide from a little wheel um, on, on the D-pad what your action button is going to be doing when you press it. It looks pretty crazy that it... it because this game shouldn't exist. Like it, based on what we've heard about the development, it shouldn't be around right now. It seems yeah. out of time to be around right now. Yep. Not that it's early. Yeah. <laughs> it's still very late. <laughs> but yeah, it it because even last year, what didn't we find out last year that they started over development and switched studios? 
Yeah, they had a they had a whole um a well, prime four of kind of event. Yeah, yeah, they they kind of the whole thing sort of blew up at one point and was was essentially restarted from scratch. Um so uh, like I'm with you. I was I was surprised to see it. I was surprised to see it in the state that it was in, like to get something more than just kind of a pretty cinematic um and i i believe they said that they're going to have more news during e3 with this one um they did so or they they said in june i think or that, in june yeah i think they said in june because play this is playstation's stream and they didn't want to say the letters and numbers e3 um yeah but it, it i mean yeah it's gonna be e3 um yeah yeah what what is a big question is will this be playable at E three? Yes, because that would be wild. Be... Yeah, yeah. Like, will it be playable? And are they going to say anything about when the first game in the series of games that this will become is going to be released? Even if it's kind of a broad window, um, right? Because it's still supposed to be and... episodic. It's yeah, and it's and that sounds really scary on the surface, but apparently, um, so it's going to be episodic. But one thing they really stressed was it's not going to be episodic like a TV show. It's going to be that each release of the game is itself going to be like a full big AAA game, or so they say. Um, I don't get why they makes... would do that because it. It's still a remake of a game that's big. I mean, Final Fantasy VII is not a small game, but it it's a game that is less than a hundred hours. You know, it, it's why would that? Yeah. Why would that be yeah. that way? It just makes me think that if that ends up being the case, it just makes me think that they're significantly changing it. Like they're calling it a remake, but you can see even from the footage they've shown so far. Um, it looks like there are certain sequences from the original game that were probably, um, I get the impression there were sequences from the original game that were like, uh, you know, short cinematics that in this version are whole playable segments. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it kind of looks like they're exploring it in a lot more depth this time. Um so, yeah, I mean, I hope it's playable at E3. I, like, I, I really, I've had my fingers crossed for this game for years, even before they announced they were doing a remake and there were all these fans kind of, you know, begging for a, for a modern version of this game. Um, I, I've been looking forward to it for years, so I'm happy to wait. Um, I just hope that it, that it kind of lives up to the expectations. From a purely selfish perspective, I hope it's not playable at E three. That line's gonna be like seven hours. That <laughs> that that I won't be able to get an appointment, and that'll be a that'll be an all day event just waiting to play that game. Yeah, yeah. It and will. and I'll, I can't come back from the E three with Final Fantasy seven remake, and not being able to say that I played it. That'd be yeah. Ah. Uh, 
I'm going to have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to be prepared for a a long day of queuing. Yeah, because as far as I know, it's not um, available with... On, on anything other than PlayStation. It, mm. I, I don't know if it's been outright confirmed to be a PlayStation exclusive. Um, but I, I think it is. Which, which is a, a little odd considering Final Fantasy XV was multi-plat. And now all the uh, older uh, Final Fantasy games, including Seven, are, are multi-platform as well. Yeah. Um, if this game comes out for Xbox One... No, I don't think it'll come back out for Xbox One. I I, I think somehow Sony has retained a, a fairly stringent um, exclusivity deal on it. I don't I I don't know why they this one would be that way though. Maybe just Sony wants to protect uh, Final Fantasy VII as being like a PlayStation icon. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a um... Maybe there's some sort of financial incentive in there. Sure, yeah. Um, which, you know, probably makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was... Because I really wasn't sort of planning to follow this state of play thing as such. Like, I, when a new Nintendo Direct comes out, I kind of always jump on it and, and want to watch it. Um, with state of play, I wasn't all that interested. I thought, oh, you know, whatever news comes out of it, I'll, I'll read up on it. Uh, and and to see Final Fantasy VII remake kind of appear again in the headlines with a with a gameplay trailer was really surprising, really pleasant surprise. Um, so at least it's not dead, so far. At least it's not dead. At least it didn't not start. Um, <laughs> which yeah, also yeah. could have been possible. Um. Okay. Other news. Persona had a little event, Atlas threw an event for Persona, where Persona 5R and Persona 5S were revealed. Neither of them are the Switch port of Persona 5, which was considered yeah. to be all but confirmed. Uh, but no, Persona well, 5 The Royal are is a play, uh, PlayStation 4 exclusive, and uh, it it's like an... Ex- Expanded, enhanced version of Persona 5. And yeah. Persona 5 Scramble is a Musou game that is also coming to Switch. Yeah. Um, so Switch fans can get that. Uh, how, do, how do you feel about this game? Or about these this pair of games and this announcement? Well, with Persona 5R... Uh, I'm kind of wondering, there is a part of me that kind of wonders who is going to play this, um, which might sound strange to say because Persona 5 has been so successful, but like I think about my own experience, um, I've been playing Persona 5 for what feels like the last decade, uh, and I, I can't really see myself diving into it again to play this version um so i know there are going to be some hardcore fans who will want to experience the game again after i don't know 50 or 60 hours or more um you know to play this extra content um 
and and I guess maybe there will be people who never bought Persona Five that will this will be the first time they play it maybe. Um, but I, as interesting as it looks, I strongly doubt that I'm going to pick this up because I just, uh, as much as I enjoyed Persona Five, it it just felt to me like it was way too long, um, just un unnecessarily long. So yeah, I, I don't really want more of of the same game. Um. But I'm sure I'm in a minority there. Yeah. Um, I get where you're coming from, but at the same time, um, the the previous two Persona games have had new versions like this. Um, mm. Persona 3 FES and Persona 4 Golden, um, where they are pretty much the same game with an, with an extra like bunch of stories and, and like a little bit longer. And they've they've always done well enough. Uh, the 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 Pokemon games are known for doing that too. Like Sun and Moon come out, and then a year later, Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon come out, and they are the same game with just some more stuff. Um, I I wonder if that kind of thing is just becoming increasingly not okay, because DLC exists, and. It seems anti-consumer to to have them buy an early bad version of a game just so they can later also buy a, a better version of a game again at full price, just again, um, when all of that new stuff could have been DLC. It, it's... Yeah pretty curious to yeah me. i would be i would be very surprised if pokemon continued to do it after the jump to switch um and i'm sort of surprised that persona is doing it in this way too um if because dragon quest 11 is doing a very similar thing where the definitive version of dragon quest 11 is the switch version and it's coming with more stories and stuff but that is almost a remake um not like a remake, but almost like a remaster rather than a port because it's coming to a new system. With this, it's the same system. It's not even reaching a new audience or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. Like I, Because I actually bought um, Persona 4 Golden. Like That was the version that I bought. I got that on the PlayStation Vita. Um, and that was my... Like I wanted to play Persona 4 and so I, I was obviously coming to the game late. So I bought that version of the game and I imagine that something similar maybe will happen here. Um, but, f you know, for me personally, I think my my time with Persona 5 is up. Um, but I am interested in Persona 5S just because that's a different you know that that's a totally different game with a Persona Five skin. Um, yeah, scramble. I, not, um, yeah, yeah. It is a retelling of the story in Persona Five, uh, which yeah, to me is a little lame. I I'd prefer you know do what happens after Persona Five or before or with a different group of characters maybe. Um, but it, it it's a it's a radically different play style being a Muso game yeah. rather than a turn based RPG, so it, it, it justifies that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, so 
I'm I'm a little bit interested in this. I mean, I want to I want to find out more about it. Um, you know, we got a very brief glimpse of it um, in the trailer, like in the footage. Um, so I'd like to see more and learn more about it. Um, it is a little bit disappointing that Persona Five wasn't announced for Switch in the end. Um, it seems like it would be a really fitting game for the Switch. Like it it kind of feels like a good match. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't to be, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm at this point pretty sure that Sony has an exclusivity deal on the numbered main series persona games. Cause otherwise I can't imagine what's going on. Um, especially yeah. after smash bros, especially after persona getting like the biggest surge in popularity it's gotten since five came out and it being entirely isolated to Nintendo fans who aren't super known for buying other consoles. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's persona. Um, Valve is doing VR They're They're making their own VR headset. It's called the index. It's very expensive at around a thousand dollars for everything or around seven fifty for just the headset and the controllers, which is, I like, wow. Um, they're going to be producing new VR games, but apparently does not plan to make them exclusive, or at least not for the most part. They're still going to be making stuff for Oculus and Vive. Because um, Vive has that exclusive Valve partnership. I I wonder what happened between uh, the Vive and... and wait, which, which company makes the Vive? It, uh... uh um h oh god h something it's right htc isn't it a- yeah you're right you're right yeah 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 the htc vibe uh so i wonder what happened between valve and htc this it seems like like a soft falling out if, if they're gonna do this because they were supposed to be uh, that that company's vr gateway yeah no i it, it's interesting you say that because i I mean, I had no way of knowing, but I I always suspected when they announced that partnership, uh, Valve already at that time were starting to experiment with a hardware side to their business, like with the Steam controller and uh, whatever it's called, the Steam Link and all that sort of thing. Um, And one thing that they were saying with the Vive was that... um, really valve were the designers of the product but they didn't have a kind of a manufacturing capacity at that at the scale they needed and so they were partnering with someone who could kind of fill in those blanks and 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 do that manufacturing and and distribution for them um i always had the impression that if they were going to keep pursuing vr if it turned out to be successful for them that they would one day kind of flick HTC aside um, and and bring it all in-house, um, which is what they've done. Um, so I think, I think HTC from Valve's point of view was maybe a bit of a stepping stone. Like there were certain things they needed to learn um, and they needed to have the experience of that initial Vive product before they could move on and create their own thing. Um, so this to me this kind of looks like a, a natural evolution of of where they were going with VR. 
Um, but it is interesting, like, you know, as you said, that the price is a lot higher than people were expecting. Um, yeah. And like I was having a look at, I was trying to work out, you know, what would justify that higher price. Um, and there are some interesting things that are, that is different about the index. I don't know how much they justify the price, but there's some interesting things. Like for instance, they're saying that um, the index has a mode or has a capability of um, reaching a 144 Hertz um, refresh rate, which apparently is significantly higher than any other kind of VR platform is capable of at the moment. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's really high. And apparently it makes quite a big difference in terms of um, like motion sickness and that sort of thing, uh, which I think is interesting. Um, and I don't know, did you see much about the controllers? I, the index controllers? I didn't see much about them, no. Um, do, do you have any information on that? Yeah, they're, they're really interesting. Like, they're really cool. So there's a couple of things that, that make them interesting. One is the way that you attach them to your hands. So you can attach them to your hands and you can kind of let go of them and they, they stay attached to your hands, um, which sounds like a really small thing, but I think in a VR context is, yeah, that's big. is quite significant. Um, the other thing is that they have this, um, and I'm trying to see if they've got like a, a specific name for it. No, um, they have a force sensitive grip. So for example, imagine you're in a, a VR world where there's a glass on a table that you want to pick up. You can pick up that glass and if you hold it gently, if you squeeze it gently, you can hold it. If you squeeze harder, you'll actually smash the glass in your hand. Huh. Um, and apparently it gives you a, it, it, there's like a haptic feedback associated with it. So I think that's a, a pretty interesting concept as well. Um, from, you know, from an immersion standpoint, um, they've also got these really weird off ear headphones. So the headphones don't sit directly on your ears. They actually kind of hover slightly off your ears. And apparently um, there's two things this achieves. One is um, it reduces the temperature so your your head doesn't kind of get too hot. Ooh, I love that. And the other thing yeah. it does, yeah, which I think is really good. Um, the other thing is apparently it has this effect where it, it creates the illusion that um, the sounds you're hearing in the world, in the game or in the world, are actually happening in the room you're standing in. And I don't quite know how that works. I think it's one of those things you'd have to try. But somehow the designers deliberately made that way so that you, um, they don't want to completely block out the ambient sound in your room. Uh -huh. They kind of want to merge the ambient sound with what's happening in the game world. Um, so there's a few little distinctive things like that that are, kind of different and, and interesting about the index. Um, but having said all that, like, you know, I've got a MacBook pro. I don't, I don't have, I don't have an ultra powerful gaming PC or anything. So um, I, 
probably am not the market for this. Like, you know, I'm probably going to have to stick to my PlayStation VR for a while. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm out. Like I can't, I can't do it for, for price alone, but also just the, it would be connecting to an other expensive computer. I also don't have. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was uh yeah. there was a quote from a game industry.biz article that I, I really liked. It was from Rebecca Valentine who showed mm-hmm. up to this, uh, like the, the initial pitch the valve did. And it goes, yeah. Valve representatives outlined three core pillars they felt were necessary for VR's success as an industry. High fidelity, which I've already mentioned, was one. The other two were low friction and affordability. And then, in one of the strangest pitches I've witnessed, Valve told us that the remaining two pillars of low friction and affordability were problems for another day and not what the company was concerning itself with for the Valve Index. So ignoring the fact that yeah that is a that is a crazy pitch to just say we need three things and we're not going to do two of them. <laughs> uh, um it 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 does it does I suppose do a good job at outlining where the focus is on this. This is a high fidelity machine with a lot of friction <laughs> and no affordability. Uh, <laughs> which makes it seem like if you're investing into VR it, it it's it's kind of it's kind of funny because if you're investing into VR, you're already going to pay hundreds of dollars to get a headset. And if you're already mm. going to pay hundreds of dollars, why not just pay a thousand dollars? What if you're already going to yeah. pay like five hundred dollars? Just just do it twice and do the better, like most <laughs> highest fidelity one. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Like, and that's where I. Even though the price has surprised a lot of people, I, from my point of view, it's not really, I kind of don't see it as a really big deal just, just because I think the whole point is that it, it makes sense to start at this, at this, um, high fidelity, uh, start with this high fidelity focus and try and really get the experience right get it to a very compelling point and then look at you know how do we over time bring the price down and make it more accessible and i mean you've obviously got sony working at the lower end uh well i should say at the mid end because you've got kind of uh smartphone vr and you've got experiences like labo vr which are very um friendly friendly affordable but low fidelity um yeah so i like the idea yeah, that we have I, a company um, kind of working at I, that I, high end trying to get the experience right um, sure you know because it's not realistic you know to, to get um to get a really good high fidelity vr experience now in the market at all is difficult um and you're just not going to get it in at a mass market price at, at this stage um so i think we'll definitely see you know like every other new technology we'll see we'll see these devices starting at this price and then over time coming down so i played deracine um or whatever the actual pronunciation of that game is the fromsoft's yeah. uh vr fairy game at yep. e3 of last year 
and that mm. was on PSVR. Yeah. And PSVR is supposed to be the one with the least friction, the most just kind of plug and play, because it's it's coming from a standard issue machine. No no PS4 is radically different, except you know the the, the Pro. Uh, whereas every computer is different, so every computer is going to have a weird time with it. Um, yeah. So that should be the most ready to go thing. Especially also consider that this is a professionally set up demo experience made for the sole purpose of selling this game, which gets a lot more time into it to put put into like the setup than than most home PSVR experiences. And it still just like didn't work sometimes. And yeah, it's it just didn't quite get there. So it if this is a a computer based VR system, and it still has any of these problems, I I couldn't possibly justify the price, um, mm. especially because a lot of I I think the higher profile VR games are starting to be much more at home on PSVR. Like the I think the the big one people are talking about right now was from Sony's earlier state of play pleasant uh, presentation the Iron Man VR game. Yeah. That that'll only be on on PSVR and and if you, if you're going to tell me about a VR game on on Steam that's coming out that people are excited for, I probably won't have heard of it. Yeah. Um it it it's just one of those things where I think the software for the launch of a console is is just not measuring up to the uh, amount of, of money and time I'd have to dedicate into getting that console, uh, and even though it's not a console, you know, I there, there's yeah. still there's still the issue of of games, and I I know people are, are talking about like we're past the Mario sixty four era of VR, we're still we, we there are a bunch of good games, and that's true. But like name three of them, right? Like I, 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 I'm having a hard time really attaching myself to like what proved VR, what like long form game proved VR. Because most of what I see on VR are are fairly cheap um, demo like movie tie-ins or or just mm. things that are more experiences than than full games. Um. Resident Evil 7 might have been the closest, but Resident Evil 7 also came out in other forms, you know? And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. And I think VR is something that we... There's the, the technology side that is... There's some really sophisticated stuff out there, but it's definitely not nearly as accessible as it needs to be to become a mass market kind of platform. Right. Um. And also, I think I just get the sense over time that we, and when I say we, I mean even developers as well, I think we are constantly thinking about VR through the lens of more traditional sort of video game experiences. And I, I just think um, there's a lot more potential to VR that, that goes well beyond kind of the experiences that we've seen before. And there are some VR sort of quote unquote games and experiences that, um, that start to kind of uh, open the door to those possibilities. But 
I feel like VR is this whole new canvas that even the, you know, the, the programmers and the designers, um, they're still not quite sure how to use the tools in the best way. Like we know that there's something really interesting there, but we can't quite get our hands around it uh, in the way that we can with a traditional video game. It's evocative um, of what I've heard some people talk about what they want to see out of the PlayStation 5, which is um, some, some people will bring up AI. Like out, out of the next big hardware jump, what they want to see with that new power are are um, AIs that, that like mean something different from what we've seen out of AIs traditionally in NPCs. Um, like AIs that are really smart and, and closer and closer to what an actual human w- w- would think. And... That that always struck me as as the wrong way to think about hardware advancement because you you can yeah. make the the technology capable to store that, but a software person still needs to make it. And exactly. uh, as as good as VR is going to go, like you still need to make those good VR games. And um, Valve didn't announce Half Life Three to to go with this headset. You know, Valve didn't announced portal 3 or left for dead 3 any of the threes really could have could have been a big sell <laughs> um on, on this thing especially like imagine after all these years they said yeah we're finally making half-life 3 it is a vr exclusive though <laughs> it's a vr game well, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah and that's the thing like i think um even if they said that uh the experience by definition would have to be radically different for it to make sense. Like I think back to the, there was a GDC 2005 speech by Satoru Iwata where he was talking about, and he had quite a good analogy. Um, he was talking about electroplankton on Nintendo DS and in, in trying to explain like what the hell that is and why they made it. He, he sort of had this analogy where he was talking about the idea that, you know, there's this creative universe and we live on a planet, um, you know, and, and on this planet we have video games, but there are these other planets and these other solar systems that have these interactive experiences that aren't really traditional video games. There's something else and we don't really know what they are, but we're kind of trying to discover them. Um, and I think that's very true of VR. Like, right, yeah. Every time, every time I see a traditional video game ported to VR, it, you know, even when it works, even when it's the best possible port, it it still just doesn't quite feel right. Whereas, you play something like. Um, uh, it was on, I think it was on PlayStation VR Worlds. It's called London Heist, I think. And it's kind of gamey, um, but it's a, there are some segments in that experience where, you know, like you're, there's one segment where you're sitting at a table and um, there are these characters in the room talking. They're talking to you. They're moving around. Uh, one of them kind of hands you his cigarette. You have to pick up a lighter and light his cigarette for him. At one point, you have to call someone on a on a cell phone and, you know, actually pick up the phone and dial them. And so it's kind of interactive. It's kind of an interactive story. It's not really a traditional game, but it's, 
you have this experience and you come out of it thinking I've never experienced anything like that before. Like that is genuinely novel and completely different. And it's not something I could have done on like without VR. That's cool. You know what I mean? It's, it's not possible without VR. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I, I think the more developers lean into that idea, the more, we'll kind of see these big VR hits. Yeah. I, I think when people talk about wanting the Mario 64 VR, it, it shouldn't mean that like we want this big, well-recognizable game that, that fits the same kind of formula of our top games in the console space. Cause it, it, yeah. it would be different, but I yeah. don't think yeah. it's too much to ask for like, we should see a masterwork in VR. Mm. We should see something that's like, this is kind of a work of art that despite it being early in, in this medium's technological growth, we should, we should re- look at this and say like, Hey, this is going to go down in, in history as, as something important. Um, and that's, yeah. that's not Astrobot and Astrobot's very good, but it's not Astrobot and it's not, mm it's 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 not resident evil even it it's there, there's something else i don't think it's happened there's a lot of really cool experiences right now in the same way i think the atari 2600 had a lot of cool experiences yeah um and the atari 2600 i don't know if it produced a masterwork i don't know if there's anything like that really until mm. the nes era like in, in home gaming there's Pong, yeah, but then for a very long time between Pong and the next thing, which would probably be Super Mario Brothers, um, mm. skipping over the 2600 maybe, like, that that's a really reductive way to look at game history, but... But, yeah, yeah. but you're right, because because if you think about it, like, Super Mario Brothers was this perfect dovetailing of technology and creativity so even if you had have had the design for the game earlier you may not have actually had the right technology to create that specific experience and i feel like um i think that's a good analogy actually for vr because even though we're we're seeing more advanced VR now than we've ever had before, but because it's all still new, um, you know, there are still those shortcomings. They're still figuring out kind of how, how to get the, the technology right. So that, you know, we're not dealing with motion sickness. Um, there's still like, you know, the screen door effect that, uh, that is, is being minimized over time, but is still there. Um, you know, the, the way that, controllers need to be designed for a vr space is still really being discovered mm-hmm. um so it's kind of like we're not we don't quite yet have that perfect fusion or, or that desired fusion of of the technology and and the creative design it's it's getting closer but we haven't hit the sweet spot yet yeah and it really only needs to be one game i i th- yes yeah there were some games like that that came out within the last two years or so. Um, there was a VR game 
about being a robot floating in space. Uh, I don't remember the name of it. It, it was something Void, maybe? Um, mm-hmm. And that that seemed like a contender. And people were talking about it a bit. And then last year, Astrobot did really well on PSVR. But it it it's still stuff like... That Astrobot game was like five levels. And that the space thing i think was only a couple hours too and 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 maybe length is just shorter in vr maybe that's something we should be expecting but you know with our current vocabulary on how we measure games that seems like not much of a thing right very few of the biggest most remembered games are that short i like maybe i mean well and the in the nes era there were actually a lot but past that anywhere past that it gets to like 10 hours or more is, is almost a requirement. A few exceptions being like Portal, um, PT maybe. And that's kind of all I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm excited to see if the Index draws new software developers to it um, that, that, that could produce that kind of game and would make things, uh, even a $1,000 console seem, seem a lot more... Uh, doable. Our last news item is a is a smaller one because I think we both agree that we don't really know what to make out of it. Uh, Microsoft and Sony collaborate on the use of Microsoft Azure cloud platforms for potential uh, PlayStation use with Sony. That's um... so we were talking about this before the show. It's kind of big and it's kind of not, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's definitely it's... Microsoft and Sony working together, and that's that's always fun. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the point you made before the show is is exactly right, where if this were some Xbox-PlayStation collaboration, it would probably be different. Um, the, the only real takeaway I have on this is um, it looks like this is a... It, it looks like this is a step towards, you know... Um, kind of a stadia style and 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 maybe not exactly stadia style but like sony kind of continuously moving in this direction of streaming and um you know the the direction they've been moving for years step by step right um you know this is just kind of from that perspective this just kind of makes sense like i think every i think every big game company is sort of trying to move in this direction in general and get to a stage where they can offer games as a service, um, you know, without actually, uh, you know, without, without physical software and all that sort of thing. So I don't know if there's any more to it than that. I suspect probably not. Like I, I doubt that it means, for example, that because of this partnership, we're going to see, uh, some sort of cross plat, some sort of extra cross platform partnership between PS5 and the next Xbox platform. No, probably uh, not. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Well, well, maybe only as much as they were already seeming like they were doing that kind of thing with uh, like yeah. Minecraft and Cuphead um, and Hellblade. Yeah, you know, yeah. those going on on other things as well. But I mean, mm. those have those have been specifically Switch for a while. And, yeah. and this is specifically PlayStation. So it's a little bit different, yeah. but um, it, to me, it just feels like this is Microsoft Word on Mac. This is not... Yeah. This is not yeah. a, an, 
Windows competing with Mac. This is just... If you can make the money where you can make it, go ahead and do it. Um, that is yeah. why they're the fourth largest company in the world, Microsoft. It, it's it's not... You know, it, it's not hard to see that... They, they, they've got some brains for business up there. They, they kind of know what they're doing. Yeah, and if you're a big company like Sony and you and you want to use this kind of big established cloud infrastructure i mean let's face it there are only really there are only a couple of companies on earth that you can partner with to do this um right. you you know you're not you're not going to spin all this stuff up yourself you're going to partner with someone who does it really well and i mean outside of like Microsoft and Google, I don't really know of anyone else. Like, you know, it's... Well, the biggest... that That is actually a little bit interesting because the biggest cloud provider in the world is Amazon. Amazon, uh, yeah. They are much bigger That's than right. either Microsoft or Google in that regard. And those companies don't... Or, or Amazon doesn't really have a stake in that market. So you assume a collaboration between Sony and Amazon would have been a lot cleaner um, than, than this. So them choosing Microsoft over them, maybe, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's telling of something, but you're right. Like, it, it's not like there's a fourth or fifth or, or sixth notable option in, in the cloud, uh, storage and management business. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. that has been our show. Um, thank you so much, James, for joining me today. You can write in at podcast at superjumpmagazine.com. You may be read on the show. Let's head into our after-school activities. The after-school activities are the part of the show where we recommend the listener do something between uh, this episode and the next, and just historically, that could be a good amount of time. So... Uh, so we want to leave you with something. I would like to recommend the um, a, a YouTube video called Broken Reality, Vaporwave, and Irony by a YouTuber by the name of Aaron Signal. I don't remember if I've recommended Aaron Signal before on After School Activities. I really like him. He's a really good um, uh, YouTuber that, that goes really in-depth with a lot of philosophical... Um, philosophy intersecting with games criticism discussion uh and and this video he's done on vaporwave and the vaporwave aesthetic in the game broken reality is really fascinating because uh it kind of hit me like a brick that we we know what vibe the 80s kind of felt like in our in our heads we we can think like uh, classic rock is kind of like hitting its apex uh there's a lot of leather jackets in the 80s you know Mm -hmm. uh and then we we know what the '90s are too. That that's definitely got a vibe. Um, but you, you, it's hard to know what the aesthetic of a generation is going to be when you're in it. Uh, but after seeing yes, this video yeah. and and just thinking about it for a while, I'm sure the 2010s will be remembered for vaporwave. Um, mm. it, it vaporwave and, and like Marvel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and between those things, it. it it, that, that's a strong, weird identity that we're, we're going to look back and just think, man, what a what a weird time <laughs> to exist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, just a very interesting dissection of Vaporwave. He's kind of critical of Vaporwave in the video in a way that I am not. 
Um, mm. So it, it's definitely a, an opinion that is opposing to my own. But he explains himself in a very uh, eloquent way, and I, I think it's worth taking a look. James, what have you brought? That's cool. Uh, so I'm recommending a, a YouTube channel called Birch Tree Gaming. Um, it's by a a writer. Well. A writer slash um, video presenter, Matt Birchler, who kind of has an interesting story, I think. He, for most of his career, like he's been quite an established um, journalist who really was focused on tech journalism, uh, you know, tech reviewing and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, uh, I think I was reading on his website that he, he always had a passion for games but he never really had any experience in sort of covering games in an official capacity. He hadn't really written about them or made videos about them. And so this YouTube channel is kind of his attempt to dive into game coverage. Um, and he, he only has a, his YouTube channel still quite new. I think um, at the time of recording, he's got about 74 subscribers. Oh, wow. Uh, so still very, very small on YouTube, but man, his videos are really good. Um, he he's he only has a handful of videos up at the moment, but they kind of range from. Uh, he's got one series that's all on kind of an analysis of Metal Gear, and I know there have been many great analyses of that series. Um, but his is definitely his take is definitely unique and is is worth watching. Um, and he's also put up a couple of reviews. Uh, he reviewed, he did a really good video review of Resident Evil 2, the, the new remake. And from memory, um, I think he was saying that he had never played the original. Like he, this was kind of, um, he, I think he'd played, I forget what it was, Resident Evil 4 or 5. He Basically, he was fairly new to the series. Uh, and it, it's interesting to watch this very in-depth kind of thoughtful review uh, of this game that has so many um, nostalgia elements to it um, that are obviously going to be lost on a, on a new player. Um, but nonetheless, it's a fantastic review. Um, so I definitely recommend this one. Uh, he's He's just got a really... Uh, he kind of has an interesting take on these games and it's, it's not one of those YouTube channels that's kind of ranty and negative, you know, it's, it's very sort of positive and wholesome and, and fun to watch. So cool. Uh, yeah. Birch tree gaming, highly recommended. I, I, I'll definitely have to check that out. You said 72 subscribers. I think it was like 74. I just had a look before we started recording um, he's only just started and I've shared some of his work on Twitter, but you know, I've got like three followers on Twitter. So I love that. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're like way early on this. <laughs> yeah. I reckon it's going to be, um, it, like if he keeps going, if he keeps making these videos, I would be really surprised if his channel didn't explode at some point. It's, it's really good, uh, really good quality, like really good production value, well-written, clearly spoken, yeah, very, very good stuff. Hang on. I think we should clarify, because I just Googled it. Um, mm. I'm looking at a YouTube channel called Birch Tree Gaming. It's got 31 subscribers, and it's all Minecraft Let's Plays from four years ago. 
So no, that's not the one. <laughs> that's not it. That was the first. We we will. Yeah, yeah. That was the first results on on Google. Um, yeah, no. So we'll put the link in the. Um, we will sure uh, in in the notes so that people can go there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm looking at another thing. That's Birch Tree Gaming, and this is 76 subscribers. Uh, I'm seeing Ooh, a lot of cool. Fortnite let's plays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh god how many birch tree gamings are there <laughs> probably a good amount oh also some minecraft stuff um <laughs> this, so the, oh yeah no this the, this the one, one i found he still has did a video called nbn nba teams portrayed by spongebob so you got that going on <laughs> yeah no he's uh i just looked him up again on youtube 74 subscribers um, and he's, he's got kind of a, like a pink, pink and white, lo- uh, text on a black background for the logo. But anyway, we'll, we'll provide the link. So, um, oh, I think, I think I found it. Okay. So the most, you'll know you're in the right place where the most recent video or one of the most recent videos of his is a video called persona five series trailer. Um, and he's also recently done a video on, uh, Gree. The G R I S. Yes. Um, yep. Right. Okay. That's that was it. the third result when you search Birch Tree Gaming <laughs> yeah. on on Google. Uh, so so a bit of bit of an issue there, but we will give you the link, just so you <laughs> are sent to the correct one. Although maybe yes. you want to check out those Minecraft videos. Maybe that's Look, more up you, your alley. You, they might be great. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. His uh the Minecraft YouTube channels like banner is done in microsoft paints and it's just it's really nice <laughs> <laughs> uh okay. oh goodness me yeah yeah so uh just before we wrap up we're definitely going to e3 this year as i alert, uh, alluded to earlier i will be uh we, we recently confirmed that i i'll be staying with good friend of the show uh and, and uh collaborator on our e3 stuff last year as well heil russell also, friend of the show, Jeff Onan was, is going to be there. Uh, also, also, I believe Cameron Regal has been on this show before. He'll be there too. And uh, the four of us will be kind of like making a little powwow. We're all going to help each other with each other's stuff. So uh, you might uh, be be ready to expect some of them here on this podcast pretty soon. Um, just because they will be right there and they'll be easy to get. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. yep. So, uh, if you have any requests for specific games you want us to cover at E3, if if you really want me to, I'll stand in line for Final Fantasy VII if it shows up. If you really want me to, but you, I might not if you don't request it. So, so make sure you do that. Uh, subscribe. Please re- remember to uh, review us on iTunes if you can. Tell a friend. All of that stuff would be great. Thanks for listening, and stay super. Mm-hmm.